Hi, I'm Shalushi Baxi Ritchie. And I'm Kosha Baxi Karstens. We are sisters and best friends who grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were really loved. We had a lot of friends, but we never felt like we fully fit in. We started to realize that there's probably a lot of other people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was a seed for this podcast. Then during the 2020 election, we watched now Vice President Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence, and we got inspired. We want to hear, share, and amplify the voices of all Americans who have felt othered. We want to give everyone a platform to reclaim their power and their place by standing up and saying, I am speaking. So today we had a fabulous guest on. I would say she was fabulous. We had a uh, drag queen. Yeah. That is named Mama Tits. But right. some of us know her also as Brian Peters. And as Brian Peters, he goes by he. Correct. So for the both of us, it was a little confusing because we were talking to almost two distinct people um, or two sides of the same person. But each side of that person had a different identity and a different story yeah absolutely but you know what I loved about Brian slash mama tits is they were very much like um you know what I came up in a time where I couldn't be queer I couldn't be who I wanted to be until much later so as long as you're respectful you know the, it, it, they weren't going they weren't doubling down and tripling down on like the identity part of it it was yeah. more about the freedom part of it I think Absolutely. that was it was really important um, but you and I met her back in 2013 oh wow that long ago yeah as mama tits yes that's right and I encourage all of our listeners to check out our Instagram uh, account because you will see a very young child of mine, my first child, <laughs> yes. uh, who is just amazed and transfixed by the glory that is Mama Tits. And I have to say that there, there is a part, I have to admit this, there is a part at the very end of this episode where it sounds like we say goodbye and then we kind of bounce back in and we're talking about how the first time mama tits met your oldest mm -hmm. and I just couldn't, it, it was kind of like afterthought conversation and I just couldn't bring myself to cut it. So it does sound a little bit out of place, but just trust me on it. It's yeah. really fantastic. Awesome. I also, I have to admit that I was really transfixed by their message. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there was a time where you and I just, we just kind of had our jaws on the ground, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, something that he said several times that I really loved was, uh, you could be fabulous, but being fabulous with a message goes so much farther. Oh yeah, absolutely. Hearing about Brian's activism in his ways, it, and of course, you know, we've talked about how being an activist doesn't look the same for every person. Some people march and some people donate and some people write letters to their representatives. Um, and some people work in organizations that do this kind of work. And Brian is an example of how activism can also look really different. He's an entertainer. 
But that's a really, really important way to get people to hear the message by first making them open to joy, right? You open them up, you show them a great time, and then you can deliver a message that is received in a good headspace rather than in a space that feels, you know, like, uh, like you're scolding someone or, you know, that you're shaming someone. So it was such a really uh, amazing bit of, of, it was a, it was a bit of a light bulb moment, I would say for me to be like, oh yeah, like you said, Kosha, you can have a message, but if you're fabulous with a message, it's just so much, it's so much more effective. Absolutely. So I will say, uh, please enjoy Mama Tits. She is speaking, but first a small disclaimer. Right. So we wanted to let you all know, our listeners, that our guests on this podcast use the word tribe to refer to one's squad or found family. Kosha and I recognize that this is a form of cultural appropriation, and we really debated how we should handle it. But ultimately, we decided to let our guest tell his story using his own words. And we all wanted to let you know that that was in this episode and that we recognize that it could be harmful to some of our listeners, but we hope that you will understand our decision to keep that word in. Thank you. Oh, this meeting is being recorded. I know. You know why? I'm going to leave now. (laughs) You know why? Because in, uh, at least in California, you have to notify everyone that you're being recorded to record. So. Oh, so it's going to get that serious. So we're going to get like legal and shit. No, no, no. But I imagine (laughs) that's why Zoom is doing that. I'm totally messing with you. Right. But no, totally. So, um, okay. So we only have you till seven. So we want to make sure we, we get all this in. Thank you so much for switching times. Also, I just wanted to point out that um, drag queen names are like one of my favorite, favorite things. So I would love to talk about at some point, I don't know if this is going to fit, but like how you come up with your names and your stage persona, because we watched um, Doom Patrol and there is a drag queen in there named Maura Lee Corrupt. Morally corrupt, <laughs> and I'm like, that's the most brilliant thing. So anyway, um, let's start the way. We a lot start. of a lot of drag names, it, it, traditionally, a lot of you know because of, of the more campy version of drag, they would always try to make a pun out of their name. Like, yeah, like when I was a, a sister of perpetual indulgence, I was a Lisa Trailer. <laughs> okay, that's awesome. I um, you know it wasn't fancy enough to own yet, so you know. That sort of thing. <laughs> very nice hello my name is mama tits some of you might know me as brian and i am speaking perfect welcome thank you so much for being here yeah we're super excited to talk thank you you. what do we call you do we call you brian or do we call you mama mama tits what what do you prefer you call me whatever you want to call me just don't call me late for the buffet got it I like that. <laughs> it's I'm I, because I'm generate because of the generation that I grew up in and because of the way I grew up. Um, you know, as everybody everybody loves, especially on TikTok, they like to make fun of Generation X as being like feral um, because <laughs> our because our parents are boomers and like um, they all were in fucking Vietnam. And sorry I, for my language, but um, no, 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 go okay. ahead and, and swear. Go ahead. Great. Um, you know, and our parents were in 
fucking Vietnam and they're a little crazy and a little bit nuts. And we were left alone a lot. So we were a more tough, we were one of the last like real rugged generations uh, before we grew up and realized, oh, wait a minute, this creates trauma for generations. So maybe we, you know, and so, but we did, we, I identify how I identify, but it does not offend me if somebody identifies me something else. Like it, I, it does not bother, but I totally get where people come from that have that frustration when people misgender them or misidentify them. You know, I, I, I totally understand that, but it was never a, you know, I had so many other things to fucking overcome growing up that that was the least of my worries. So call me whatever you want. So that's actually a great entree point to this conversation, which is let's talk about what it was like for you to grow up. I mean, you said there's a lot of things. You've been a drag queen. What else is what else is going on in your life or has gone on in your life? Like, where would you like to start? Well, where do you want to start? I mean, it's a, a I, I will warn you going into it. It's not all unicorns and gumdrops. I mean, there's a pretty dark past in in my in my history. One of my an old friend uh, said that it was called it my dark trailer um, because there's just a lot of craziness. So it depends on how deep you want to get with this. Well, let's okay. Let's start a little bit by talking about what it was like growing up, right? I'm also a Gen X kid. Um, okay. Right. Uh, I'm one of the younger Gen X kids. I was born in 76. I think Kosha is at the very cusp. I'm a cusper. I'm yeah. right at the end as well. I'm 79. So yeah. I'm, oh, yeah, I'm 80. So yeah. And you're, you're that weird, like, we don't know what generation you are because officially it ended in 79, but right. unofficially it didn't end until 82. It's weird. And also yeah. I definitely, if I could choose, I'm like, I'm a Gen Xer. Well, I, like when I when I think about how Kosha grew up, Kosha grew up way more like me than like our right. younger siblings who are clearly millennials, um, older millennials. Uh, so we there's two of us. I'm the oldest, then Kosha. Then uh, we have a sister who is nine years younger than me, so born in '85, and a brother who was born in '87. They're at the top millennial. end of the millennials, right? Yes. Um, but certainly. You know, one of the things that seems to tie together Gen Xers are things like cassette tapes being sent out to play. Just go play, right? And don't come home to like. I mean, the home when the streetlights come on. Being a latchkey kid. Yeah, that was the other one, right? Have a fondness for and a great hatred of the Oregon Trail. Oh, I'm We've still not traumatized. Playing that game, but yes. And you could never win that stupid game. I died eight miles from the end. I it's like me like dragging myself on my hands and knees. <laughs> Everyone had died, everything. I was so sick. My tombstone said, I hate this stupid game. Like I was like, oh. Oh yeah. You would have died once you got there. We as a class made it once. Wow. We, we completed the game as a class. Yeah. <laughs> we had the entire wagon world. So this this whole family was a clan of you know thirty kids, and, and only one person won, and like three people made it. Made yeah, it across like the it, finish line. And two of the two of the three were like one was being dragged, the other one was just like a head in a jar, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, inevitably I always got like dysentery. Dysentery. 
or drowned while crossing the river. Oh, that happens. You know, oh, your ox drowned. God I would, damn yeah, it. And then now as a 41 year old, right? Like I've had dysentery and I'm like, oh my God, what a horrible way to die. <laughs> And I've, I had somebody recently I know come down with dysentery multiple times. I was like, what in the Oregon Trail is happening to you? Like, are you kidding me? That is great. I'm saying that from, that's awesome. That's, that's any, any, any disease that came in Oregon Trail, if you see it today, you're like, what in the Oregon Trail is happening? Okay, yeah, like, I'm saying that. So that. Actually, that's a really great place to start. So you're, you're a Gen X. Yeah, I grew up in California. Whereabouts? Uh, I grew up in San Jose, Cupertino, San Rafael, so South Bay. Yeah, yeah. Back um, when it wasn't was the born, South Bay. Yeah, exactly. When it was a whole different world. Yeah. When right, going right. to San Francisco was like going to another planet. Yeah. Because it was worlds apart. It was not just the same neighborhood. So I was born in Salem, Oregon, but my mother, what I, the cognitive memories that I have are growing up in California and growing up around the eucalyptus trees in San Jose. And um, I do have vivid memories of my mother being a single mom and our, our apartment that was next to a pool in this weird little complex and the backyard. Like I have some glance memories of that, but growing up in California, what really got to me was when I was in elementary school and um, I was in uh I went to Forest Hill Elementary School in Campbell. And that was kind of the place where I kind of discovered friends and all this stuff. And But I was always a weird one. I was always that odd kid. But nobody ever, it was kind of interesting because nobody ever put anything on me. But like the first costume that I could choose when I was a kid, I remember it was Jeannie from I Dream of Jeannie. My mother used to dress me in like, uh, a mummy costume or mm -hmm. a skeleton or you know it was very or a ghost or it was very it was really interesting it's funny because my mother didn't really do gender specific things she didn't intend to not be gender specific she just was you know just oh maybe we'll make him a ghost you know right. and or whatever you know, it, was, it was a goddamn 80s okay there yeah was, you know you went you went to joanne's fabrics or whatever halloween print the kids liked mom made a t-shirt and shorts out of it that was your costume my dad my dad's a surgeon and several years i was a doctor and i just wore scrubs and like put a stethoscope around my neck who cared we didn't care <laughs> I was like, I get to wear fun things. Yeah, we also I, went I to see Indian princesses for several years because we had Indian clothes, so we would wear the Indian clothes, and it's all like very fancy, right? I would have followed you all around because you would have sparkled and flowed, and I'd have been like, "Can I have an Indian princess costume too?" We'll get you one, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that is actually a live goal. So when I, <laughs> but when I chose my first costume, it was Genie, and everybody and people were like, "Wait, what? What?" What, what? And I was at this lady who was our daycare lady, Dana. She was down the street and um, she was like, I don't care. Let him wear that. Who cares? Like, who cares? And this is the 80s. Right. So there were still air raid sirens going off in San Jose. That would happen every, I think it was once a month that they would test them. And they would, and I remember this vividly growing up there. Californians will, remind anybody who grew up in the, in the Bay Area at that time knows what I'm talking about. Um, and I don't know if it was all over California, but just that area. But it, it was just this time where everybody was just kind of, you know, the hair was bigger, you know, the, the colors were pastelier, yep. you know, and, and so it was, it was interesting. Um, it wasn't until 
elementary school was fine. I was a kid. We were all too young. When I got into um, junior high is when we moved to Stockton, California. And that's when it became very much um, survive. I had to survive because I was one of like four or five Caucasian children in this school in Stockton. And I had never experienced, like being in San Jose, I mean, it was very culturally diverse, but there was a lot of mixture, but there wasn't an, uh, a missing group. Everybody was kind of represented. There was all different shades of brown. There was all different shades of white. There was, you know, all this different, you know, but there was a, a heavy Latino community, which I did see more of and, and a black community, but it wasn't like any one big group was standing out as not being there. But when we went to Stockton, we stuck out like sore thumbs. We were the white people. I bet. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I was going to school on the South side. And so were you, were you out at this time? No, no, I didn't come out until um, high school. Um, I was, I was out in high school and we'll get into that story. Oh yeah. I just was curious because being, being one of the few white, kids in Stockton and being out I can't like that's just adding layers of otherness at that point it was not even an option to I didn't even know what gay was at that time I did all I knew was it was different I did like boys but I didn't say anything about it but I didn't know that I liked them in that way I just was like they were interesting and intriguing to me uh, and girls, I didn't really get. Mm-hmm. It was just a really awkward thing. But this was a school that, like, when they did sem- uh, when they did locker raids, they found semi-automatic weapons in this school. And I was there for the Rodney King riots, you know, going to school in, in Stockton. And and they're, we're not in L.A., but we are in Central California. And um, a heavily angered community of color, a very, you know, they're just extremely pissed off and viscerally reacting as well deserved but the Rodney King riots were all up and down in in California like crazy and um at least when I was a kid it seemed out of control not only was it on television and LA was burning but in Stockton it was like all these people were driving through the Kmart in Stockton in their car like you know just rioting and that sort of a thing but it wasn't like the city was burning but as a kid, it was so much. Uh, this was also a place that we did domino drills where they would um, shoot off blanks. You know, you'd hear the security guard shoot off a blank and they'd test the kids during recess to see us lay flat because this was back when like school shootings started. Like when we were really, you know, Stockton had a, we had a few. My little cousin was homeschooled one day when Tiger Elementary was shot up. And it's literally a bunch of, fourth and fifth graders like being shot up on the recess like are you you know but this was also gang driven and drug driven and um just a completely different world um the unfortunate part was was that because of the disenfranchisement of the communities and everything that was that was going on it was like it was almost like these communities of of violence and and whatnot were almost created because everybody was shoved out of other places and kind of pushed into this little area um so it was interesting so for me growing up it was survive because everybody hated the big white kid i was jumped by 
every different gang there was the Asian gangs, the Latino gangs, the black gangs, they were all coming for me just because I was this big target. I was always the big person. I remember getting sucker punched, uh, at in junior high school, somebody came up and tapped me on the shoulder and I turned around and I was up like three steps and he just hauled off. And all I remember was this big, big black fist coming at me and he hit me right in the eye and he knocked me out and I kind of saw stars and fell. And when I woke up, I had all this food that had been thrown on me while I was down. Wow. And at, then they called me faggot and queer because I was, just, I didn't know what that was. I didn't. Did they? I mean, it's like, it, it was just, they knew it was derogatory. My, my yeah. question, like they weren't actually calling you gay. I but don't they, know. They I don't, I don't know. They knew it was hurtful. I don't know if they knew I was, but I was a little more femme. I've always been that, you know, I've always flourished you know, when I spoke and, and, you know, and I'm an emotional human being. So, yeah. So that was, that was interesting. I mean, I, I remember getting off the bus one day and 12 Vietnamese kids who were trying to be cool, like their big brother gang members jumped me and I have 12 kids jumping me and I'm throwing them left and right being like, you know, some weird cartoon people would, you know, they, every day it was a nightmare to just keep your head down, focus, pray to God they had somebody else in their sights that day yeah. and that you could make it another day because it was like when it was your day, when the target was on your back. Everyone was coming for you. God, it was so much. And it was like, and it wasn't just getting beat up. It was getting cut. It was getting, your life was threatened. I mean, this was a place where we would find bodies at our school and there would be, you know, just the gang violence and the drug violence that was around was a lot. And my parents, because we couldn't afford to live in the Bay area anymore. We were, uh, unfortunately we were poor white trash. We couldn't afford it. So we moved to the ghetto because that was the only place that we could actually afford to buy a house. But the part of Stockton that we lived in was the North side. So it was a little polished, a little gentrified. That's where they put the first Walmart. And we thought it was really cool. And they had the little mini golf there, but you cross the railroad tracks and it was hood. Yeah. There was no lawn on anything, everything, every house in that town had bars on their windows and guns were normal. And you did not look at anybody sideways when you were in the drive, when you were driving, like anybody did road idiot things. There was no road rage because they'd shoot you. There were neighborhoods you couldn't even go into when the lights, when the street lights went on, that if it was a circle neighborhood, one entrance, but it was like the center block and then everybody around interior backyards backed up to each other and then the you know but it was one sub one subdivision and there were some that were gang controlled that if you, they would let you in at night but if you didn't know anybody in there you didn't come back out the cops wouldn't go in there because they were too afraid so that's what and then so then to get me out of that because my mother was afraid i was gonna die she sent she sent me to live with my father uh, I'm, I'm the only living child out of five on my mother's side. Um, I do have a, a half, I have a, a, a half brother with my father. And then I now have two stepsisters. Um, basically 90 to 96 was pretty much hell. 
Yeah. Um, miscarriages and different things. And it was just a lot of trauma for our family to go through. And that's, so you were 11 to 17. That's, that's a horrible time for any, any kid, kid, any kid yeah. to go through that kind of hell. Yeah. And to be like preparing to have a sibling and then not. And not. Right. And then watch your mother and your dad go through that. Yeah. And yeah. then the suicide of my brother. And then it was just so much. And then the bankruptcy of my parents and we just, we lost our house. And my mom was like, you gotta, wow. you gotta, you, I need to send you away. Cause this is just becoming tenuous. So she sent me to live with my father in Oregon. And I moved to um, Corvallis, Oregon, Albany, Salem area. Mm-hmm. I went to school over there and it was really weird. It flipped me out because I went from Stockton, California to the great white North. And I was very uncomfortable because these little, this Oregon version of the world was, so we go up there and it's just really odd. But the odd, the other odd part was, is that like, my father was never a like stick around dad mm. my whole life. He had, he'd remarried, he had another kid and then that marriage fell apart. So he was now off on his own. And, um, I'm with him. And so he's now a single parent for the first time in his life. And I've gotten some fucked up training. Yeah, sure. You know, Cause I'd already uh, 11 to 17 is developmental years. And those were derailed hardcore. Well, so you were in a very violent school situation in middle school. And then you moved to high Oregon. school was hippy dippy and weird. And then all of a sudden, gay things were okay. I figured out what homosexuality was, and everybody was like, "It's fine." So I went to this place. In, <laughs> I went to this um, uh, high school in Corvallis called Crescent Valley High. <laughs> it sounds very idealistic, girl. It is where all the rich white kids went, and they were they were not afraid to tell you that looked completely secluded from town and it was built like a college. We did block scheduling. Mm -hmm. So like your classes were two and a half, three hours and you only had like four or five classes a day. And sometimes you had a a free period where you could just go to the quad and study. Very different than stuff. Yeah, yeah, very. It was weird, although I did not hate it. Well, I wouldn't hate it either. I wouldn't hate it either. I was like, I was like, it was very cultural shock, but I didn't hate it because I wasn't looking over my back every time. Yeah, you. I mean, there's some there's something to be said for not being scared that you might get injured or die every day you leave your house and go to school. So is that where would you say that's where you started to explore the idea that you might be gay because it was okay to think about it there? I had already been experimenting throughout young age because of different other things that had happened um i had already been kind of a little but it was very internalized very quiet nobody ever we didn't talk about it but it wasn't until i was a freshman in high school that i was like okay i can i can do this i'm in this little crescent valley high with all these you know fabulous little white people and everything is hunky dory and you get a flower for existing today so you know it was it was very much i mean there was a goddamn creek that ran through the center of the campus it was beautiful so you know yeah i was able to be queer and 
a little different and be around the other gay boys and da da da, but not really identify much, but just kind of like dabble in it, whatnot. And I had um, experimented with this boy. We had kind of flirted and then we kind of fooled around a little bit. And he went home and told his mom because he felt guilty, you know, buyer's remorse bullshit. And, um, <laughs> and his mother freaked out and like called the police, like the birth of Karen's for me. Yeah, yeah. This woman was so, she was so hyper-conservative, weird hippie hyper conservative woman but she had so manipulated her son that she could have told him the sky was the sky is black and nighttime it glows green and he's like okay he would, he would believe her gone along with it yeah well certainly any young person who is experimenting with their sexuality and goes home and tells their parents about it is in a different category of young person. I don't want to make any Correct. other assumptions. No. Except for no, that most people don't go home and tell their parents when they made out with someone. No, no. Right. And we had we had done a little bit more than making out, but we were both freshmen, high school boys. So there was not we were the same age, mm-hmm. was very consensual. You know, we didn't fuck or anything, but it was just two boys rolling around in a field. We were having yeah. a good time he told his mom and she freaked out and called the police. And then that's how my parents found out was they literally pulled me out of class and they were like doing this whole thing because this parent was sounding the alarm and all this stuff. And um, then they interviewed the boy, they interviewed me, they separated everybody. uh, They interviewed the mother. uh, And then they had to call my parents and tell them what was going on, which more, that's how my parents found out that I was queer. This nothing came of this because the counselors the police everybody were like these two boys one did nothing wrong two this is two boys experimenting and three we need to have a conversation with this lady because they come to find out there was a lot more Mm. drama and they had their own thing but then this kid was so wrapped up in his world with his mother that he then went psychotic and i ended up having to leave because he went like you know, he went very hand that rocks the cradle. Yeah, hanging headless dolls off of my locker and like wow, super gluing things. It just went way off the deep end. He went kind of Norman Bates. Girl. Yeah, right. So then that so you had to leave. By then my parent, my mom and my stepdad had moved to Idaho. Good time you didn't have to move to Idaho. My father sure as hell couldn't handle me much anymore because, to be honest, my father was not ready to be a single parent, but he was in his corporate world of career. So my father would go off on trips to Europe for weeks. And leave you? Leave me. Yeah. To go to high school by myself with a college student that he would hire from the university. To be the responsible adult. That's very boomer to Gen X kid, right? That's very, yeah. And Gen X kid's situation, I ended up inadvertently sleeping with two of them. Wow. Inadvertently? Because they were not, they weren't much older than me. Right. You know, and it was like, by the, you know, it was like, you know, I'm never going to tell who they were or whatnot because I don't want anybody to get in trouble because I, I wanted it. I was, you know, we were young kids and whatever, but that's the time I was like, okay, so I'm now basically raising myself. And then the, all this other shit, my family's being ripped apart. The suicide of my brother happens. My father thinks I shouldn't go home to deal with that because it's going to cause me too much. And that snap, I snapped. I couldn't, 
And that's when I left. I left my father, like on top of the thing with the queerness and then with this, that I just was like, you don't understand me. You don't get this. I got to go. And he just, he wanted to throw me into therapy to see if it was a phase or not. And if it wasn't, how do we, bro- you know, it was that very boomer, like, I don't understand. Here's drugs. Yeah. Yeah. And it destroyed my creativity. So I ran, I ran and went back to with my mom and we moved to Idaho. I freaked because that was even worse. Like it went from like hippy dippy weird white people to whoa. Guns and God white people. Yeah. That was the first time I'd realized that I was the same as them. And I was like, I don't like my people. Like <laughs> really, really had a long time of like, I don't like this. And I even, I used to tell my, I was like, can we go back to Stockton, please? I can at least understand where everybody's coming from. Sure. Like I got, I figured that out. Um, and that was high school, right? Mm-hmm. You're still in high school at this point. Correct. Yeah. My and I wonder like you, you probably wanted to go back to Stockton. Cause you're like, now I understand why all of those people of color were mad at me. I was like, girl, now I get it. I get it. So, so you moved to Idaho. You were like, what the F is this? Now it's my sophomore, sophomore year in high school. And I am this big homosexual in conservative Nampa, Idaho. And the fateful situation of like, I meet the varsity quarterback and he's closeted and homosexual. And we go into a secret relationship for the next like four or five years commences. For four or five years. Girl, I was out. Idaho, I was at the point where I'd gone through enough and then by the time I got to Idaho, I was like, yeah, I'm a fucking faggot. I don't give a shit. I'll fuck your dad. Leave me alone. Like, I was so aggro about it. Cause like, I was like, bitch, I grew up in the hood. Like y'all might have guns and God, bitch, but I got gangbangers and they will shoot you and your mom and your dad. And like, they will keep going generational. Like I, you don't scare me. I was just an asshole. I was like, fuck the world. Mm-hmm. So I really dove into this queerness, this weirdness. I found raving in Idaho, of all places. Um, and there was a place in, in Boise called Dreamwalker, which was an underage club. They didn't serve booze. They only did soda and everything, but they did, it was a nightclub. And it was where, and it was on the strip with all the other nightclubs, but it was for, you know, 18 and over or actually I think we were 16 and over at the time and we could go out there and we could go to Dreamwalker and be a part of it but then we'd go sneak out and go get drunk and then come back and whatnot but we would rave and we're part of the party kids that like threw raves and that's when I got into because because at that point I was like I'm one I'm in Idaho so there ain't shit to do and somebody introduces me to the rave scene. I'm like, okay, this music is fun. This is different. I get to be weird. I get to be freaky. I get to wear funky, glowy things in my hair. I get to wear big Jinko jeans. And I get to, you know, wear a panda backpack and be considered cool and nails and whatever. And, oh, my God, there's another boy. And I get to kiss him. And it's great. Oh, and wait, there's drugs? Yeah. Sign me up. Like, right. I was all about it. Because I needed... I was so angry at the world. I needed some place to run to. And that's where I ran the entire. And so I, and unfortunately that my relationship with my parents was getting worse and worse because the trauma of losing all the children, the trauma of going bankrupt, the trauma of having to move to Idaho from California for my mom and my stepdad was traumatic for them. Sure. Um, and my stepdad, his, 
his son was his golden boy and he was gorgeous and he was tall and he was muscular and he was loved by everybody. And he was, I mean, Cal Spas literally shut down the day of his funeral just so that everybody could, because he was, he was so loved in the community at that time, all over the state of California. And my brother was not innocent, you know, like he had a drug problem and that was ultimately why he took his life which is ultimately why I was like, well, what's so amazing about this shit? Dove right into it because, you know, it got him away. I I didn't want to die, but I wanted to know what was so cool about it. And he was Mm -hmm. so cool to me. Was he older than you? Yeah. 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 He was, he was eight years older than me. Yeah. So you're looking up to him and. Oh my God. We never fought. My mom and my stepdad got together when I was like two. Okay like started hanging out and my brother Vinny was around all the time. He wasn't always there, but he was that cool brother that showed up and that you didn't want to fight with that. You just were like, Hey, yeah, show me everything, you know? And you're just like, I just want to be around you. You're the, and he would, and he was that one that he wasn't weirded out about his kid brother. He was just like, come on, let's go do shit. And he would teach me all the tricks to get away with shit. You know, so he was amazing. And then when he died, it fucked me up and fucked our whole family up. And so we were so toxic, the three of us, my mom, Mm -hmm. my stepdad and me. It was abusive. My mother had, unfortunately, she had been abused. So her reaction to a lot of life's trauma was to to continue the abuse. So she was beating on me. My stepdad was angry. He was continuing the line of abuse. So he was beating on me. And we were all being very toxic to each other until one day it popped. So you finished high school in Idaho and then you left. No, I didn't finish high school until I was in high school and I left my parents' house when I was 17 and moved to my friend's parents' house, left. I was like, fuck this, I gotta go and finished high school on my own. But but you, that was still in Idaho, correct? Correct. So you just, you weren't living with your parents when you finished, you moved out and finished high school as sort of an unofficially emancipated minor and moved in with a friend and then finished there. Correct. So how long were you in Idaho? Oh God, I was in Idaho off and on. So like sophomore to summer of senior year. Okay. So four-ish years, let's say. Four-ish years in Idaho. And then I came back and lived there for a couple of years later. Okay. And then moved to Seattle. But yeah, no, after Idaho, I kind of, that's when I like took off and I was like, I'm going to move to New York city and I'm going to do da 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 da. And then that didn't work out. Came back, lived in Idaho for a minute. And then I was like, I'm going to move to Seattle. And then I stayed in Seattle for 20 years. Okay. So you were in New York city. What did you do in New York city? And how did it affect your sort of continual coming out or your continual? So I'm 18 years old. I'm already out as a homosexual. I have, I've already done drag. I've already done different things. I had found the club kids on the Phil Donahue and the Sally Jesse Raphael. So I knew what all that was. I was a raver. So I was like, okay, this is the new generation of club kids. And I went to New York city in the nineties thinking, oh my God, I'm going to go to limelight. Uh, you know, and I'm going to go see all of this, which I didn't know that it had been shut down at that point. But, um, you know, I wanted to go and I wanted to be a part of it, but I did go to all the nightclubs, Twilight Tunnel. I went to Escalita. I went to, you know, Curfew. I went to, you know, Webster Hall. I went to all these different places uh, and uh, underage because I would just get into drag or get into some form of drag and you just would get in New York in the nineties. You could get in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, li- I, you know, I lived 
this really bohemian homeless kid life. I moved to New York City with $300 in my pocket. Um, and we stayed at the YMCA until the money ran out uh, on the Upper East Side, just two blocks up from Trump Tower off of Columbus Circle. Uh, I think it's 63rd and Central Park West or something like that yeah. is where it was. And um, so we were over the Upper West Side. Um, and then after that, I kind of had to go. I kind of went homelessy for a little while, figured it out. Um, got a job at Tiffany's Restaurant on West 4th Street and 7th Avenue, which is right in the village across from Christopher uh, Christopher Street Park. Uh, Stonewall is just a few doors down. Um, it is now a Bank of America. Oh. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, it, it's a bank, or it was the last time I was there, but across the street is the Riviera. Then across the street is the duplex where Jack from Will and Grace, just Jack. And then the monkey paws down the way and like all of that's right there. And I'm working at this restaurant and I, I was homeless. So like I would sleep in the back. There was a section of the restaurant that had been not damaged after the fire, but they shrunk the restaurant and there was still part of the restaurant that was walled off and that I could sleep in. So I would sleep there and I would shower at like the bathhouse or at the, you know, the hostel or something. Um, and then I finally got like a weekly hotel at the Jane Street Hotel. Get this. So I'm at the Jane Street Hotel. It's on 13th Avenue in Jane. The Jane Street Hotel, if you know, that's where RuPaul lived in the 80s. She lived on the top floor. And uh, my friend, who's also a designer and, uh, and whatnot, who I met through other mutual friends, Michael Schmidt, also lived there back in the day. And like they all talk, you know, they all did different things. Um, Ten years after Ru lives there is when I move in. And it's still the same crazy, weird weekly hotel this is the same hotel that the survivors of titanic stayed at oh that is strange yeah so where the carpathia docked when they were bringing the survivors was right across the west side highway mm. from the jane hotel and they all there's a fountain in the lobby that is from the titanic oh wow yeah because when they went back and collected shit that was floating i guess this was one of the things in the family anyway small little rooms crazy history in this place i come home one day you know i had been kind of there and this is where i tried being a hooker because i was like i need to make money i need to do whatever and so like the drag queen and trans uh sex workers that lived in the jane were kind of helping me kind of figure that out but they were also protecting me they wouldn't let me go with just any john they wouldn't let me go up to any car and then like the first car that i actually went up to i like freaked out and ran away and screamed and cried and like couldn't do it they laughed at me for were you you were doing this in drag oh yeah oh okay. yeah all right um and in boy drag and gender fluid just kind of all different things but i never i never picked up a john i always thought i was rugged but i was i was a good girl um i came home one day and there was this building that was attached to the jane and it was a derelict old nightclub and i'd come back to home one day and all of a sudden there's this ramble rousing and everything all these people coming in and out and we had been hearing shit for days going on inside but didn't see anything Come to find out this group was putting on this show and this show ended up being Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And the person I was chatting with happened to be John Cameron Mitchell when he was overseeing them redoing this whole space for this new project after they had just done this show and run it at 
who subsequently, which is funny, they had run it at this bar, which subsequently was my friend's bar back in the day. Wow. My friend Michael Schmidt, he owned the bar that John Cameron Mitchell launched it at that then went to, it was like. Very, that's very meta. Yeah. Yeah. And so I got to take, like Sandra, Ber I met Sandra Bernhardt there and she kind of took me uh, under her wing for a couple, a couple things. It was really sweet. And I met a whole bunch of, I met Lady Bunny and I met Ruth Paul and I met uh, Kevin Aviance. I was at parties with, um, with Jackie Beat. And every, I mean, I was, I was at things like the tail end of the dream era. And um, so I got a glimpse of it. And then the reality of I'm 18 years old. And I'm in New York City. I don't have any family on this side of the country. I don't have any money. <laughs> I had to go home. So I got on a train and I came back to the West Coast because it just, it lasted almost a year. <laughs> but a lot, I crammed a lot in there. Fun year. Came back to the West Coast, kind of settled back down in Idaho and then made it up to Seattle. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, and then when I went to Seattle, kind of the rest is history. Yeah. So it sounds like you had dabbled in drag at various points, you know, in your life, starting from the first time you could pick out your own costume, right? Mm -hmm. But then over the course of, you know, as you got older, you'd done more elaborate things and you'd been more intentional with it. When did you decide to really sort of like embrace that and be like, oh, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to develop a whole personality. I'm going to do a whole thing around this. So I've been doing it as a hobby since I was 16 years old. It wasn't until um, I joined the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence in, so it was like 2004, 2005 that I, I had been doing, I joined the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence because I was so amazed by the, um, what they were doing as an organization, I was really fascinated by them with their outreach, with queer outreach and safe for sex outreach and everything. And I just was blown away by them. And I was like, this is something I want to do. And I asked my husband, I said, would you mind? He's like, I don't give a shit, go ahead. And um, joined them and they gave me a reason to put it on. And it taught me a base of philanthropic reasoning. Is that when you were Alicia Trailer? When I was Elisa Trailer, I originally was uh, I was originally Anita Bitmore. Oh, I get it. Nice. I love the puns so much. Yes. And then I was Elisa Trailer because we weren't fancy enough to own. <laughs> and then I became Stella Standing. Nice. Oh, I like that. Yeah, and um, while I was with the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, I tested HIV positive. So it was actually really serendipitous that I was with this organization that was that was a part of the very first candlelight vigil for AIDS victims, the very first safer sex uh, common language uh, pamphlet in the, in the history of the world they created. Um, you know, and, and this organization of 2,500 nuns at the time worldwide that was um, a family that was like, we're going to help you with this. You're going to be okay. We got you. And so, and it taught me to not only be fabulous, but if you were fabulous with a, with a message, you would go so much further. You would get so much more people's attention. And. Oh, I love that. And it was, it was like, oh, so then I was like, well, then I can, I can flip that a little bit. And I can really dive in and I can, I can do my thing. And so I really became part of the system. I became fully professed. I, I was doing manifesting two, three times a week. 
and just raising money and, and doing events and doing all these things. I then got an opportunity to, because I'd been hosting events and I just really started to get back on the stage and, and everything. And somebody told me, they're like, why don't you go do, why don't you go pitch the show to this theater guy? You know, because you, you could do your own thing. You could, you could have your own thing. And I did. And he said, no, but you can host my show. And he hired me for the host of his show. Terrible business owner. He was a terrible manager. He was terrible, terrible, terrible. Treated us like shit. But what I did get was boot camp in being a working professional drag queen. Because I had to switch from being a drag nun to a drag queen because it went from volunteer philanthropic to a career. But in that, I kept that base of you got to have a cause. You got to make them think. You got to make them feel. So that's why the kind of mama created, that's why it kind of transitioned to mama, but we had to create these character names. And I came up with Busty McGee. And I told everybody, I was like, my name is Busty McGee and you can call me tits. And they loved it. But every single night, a bachelorette party would come up and everybody in the group would be like, oh yeah, my friends have been calling me Busty McGee for like, Ever. Oh my God. And I considered that my own personal hell. <laughs> I, would. I was I was like Becky. <laughs> and so I was I was actually downstairs in the dressing room with a bunch of other drag queens and Robbie Turner at the time. Uh, we were working together and uh, Jackson Brown and Isaac Scott and a bunch of other people were, were, were doing the show in Seattle. And, um, and I looked at Robbie and I said, Oh, I hate my name. If one more Becky comes up and says, Oh my God, I'm going to slap her. I'm just, and then I'm going to be arrested. Like, so this is not good. I need to figure this out. And he goes, and he looks at me and he goes, well, girl, you always say, you know, you can call me tits. So let's go off of that. But you're like everybody's mama. You like to make sure everybody's okay. You like to make sure everybody's taken care of. You are the first mama bear to get into a fight with somebody. If somebody like pops off, like you're, you're that bitch. So, and your tits are bigger than Texas. And you already tell people you can call me tits. So why don't we just call you mama tits? It's not that much of a change. Give it a shot. See what you think. I was like, okay. We'll try it. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Mama Tits. And they went nuts. And now I still have women come up to me, but they go, well, I could be Mama Tits too. I was like, but my response to them is two things. One, it's, you know, careful, because if you do start using that name, you owe me royalties. And two, whenever they get a little bubble, I should be Mama Tits. Mine are bigger and mine are real. I always follow it up with, uh, yeah, but mine come off and I can sleep on my stomach. So... Yeah, also do. Uh, I'm sorry. Do you want to be a drag queen? Just go ahead. Right, exactly. It's like do it. <laughs> Create your. It's so funny, but you yeah. know, whatever it is. I mean, I'm a clown, basically. I mean, Bianca Del Rio says it right. It's like you know, we are pretty much we are just glamour clowns, and you can't take it too seriously, you know. But it's it's changed my life. But it was then that I decided I wanted to do it full time. Was when I was in that show. I was like, I really like this. I like being on the stage I like looking for and I'd always wanted to be a performer and then it just kind of snowballed into you know uh once I I Jinx Monsoon we got we got Jinx Monsoon included in that show and then the boss gave her my job before 
drag race and all this shit. Um, but uh, but I was like, let me give you some advice. Like, don't let him fuck you over. Do this. And da, da, da. remember, you have what he wants. Like, girl, you got this. And then she goes off and wins drag race and comes back. And she was like, I will never forget that you were nice to me when you didn't have to be. And I stole your job. And I was like, that's OK, because we're going to get a lot of mileage out of that feud right. for the year. So we're going to have fun with this. Yeah, because everybody's like, oh, mama must hate her. I'm like, I don't give a shit. She just did her job well. And I'm happy, you know, and I'm, I'm one of those people that are just like, my path is very different. You know, I went over and created Mimosas with Mama, which was my drag brunch. Um, that then, because if I wouldn't have gotten fired from my show, I wouldn't have been, had a fire under my ass to keep a job and figure something out. And I went to my friend at the time who owned the grill on Broadway, two doors down from the theater I was working at. And I said, build me a stage and I'll bring you a show. And I'll be goddamn if the next week there wasn't a stage built in this goddamn lift show or restaurant. I was like, shit. Now I have to bring a show. <laughs> I was like, I called a bunch of drag queen friends. I was like, girls, we got a show. It pays nothing, but let's do it. So it, yeah, it was 400 bucks a week that we got paid to do the show and that was split between like five people wow okay plus a sound guy so that that was mimosas with mama that's how we started that and then then it built and it built and it built and then the restaurant closed and we had to kind of take it on its own and by then we had already built enough of an audience and we got over to the unicorn narwhal uh, it was like right at our one-year anniversary we got over to the unicorn narwhal in seattle and adam uh who owns the unicorn took a chance. I went through his booker at the time, Chris, got a meeting with Chris. Adam was there and was really cool and coy as the young business owner. And uh, then decided to take a chance and it's still running to this day. Sold it to them when I moved to Mexico, sold them the brand Mimosas Cabaret and it's still running. They're actually opening up again in August after COVID. Like Wonderful. it's amazing to watch. It's like now it's in somebody else's hands and they're doing something with it. It's just, it's cool. But it sounds like that fabulousness with a message that really resonated with you. Yeah. Which is why I was like, I got kind of stagnant doing that drag brunch like there's only so much you can do and especially when you own it and you're the op the owner operator and you created it like there's nowhere else to go like you're at the top so i built it to where it was sustainable and it was like now it's time for me to go do something else and i jumped into my solo career which was the perfect amalgamation of my sister my boot camp as a drag queen my business womanness of you know, Mimosas Cabaret and the teamwork that my husband and I had done and putting it all together to create Mama Tits, the solo act and bring it down here to Mexico. And which is what always sets me aside from everybody else. As everybody says, she always makes me cry or she always, you know, takes me on an emotional journey. And that's what my goal is, is because I have this pulpit. I'm not going to shablam shablazzle in front of you. I'm not going to do 42 costume changes. I'm not going to do all these other things. I'm a storyteller, but I'm also going to rip at your heartstrings. I'm going to make you think about shit so that when you go home and you're sitting there having that joint sitting on your sofa, something that I said to you is going to slap you in the face and make you think about something for a little while. And then maybe it'll invoke some change or maybe it'll inspire you to do something, you know, to, to make a change with whatever, you know, that it speaks to you about. Or maybe it lets you know that you're not alone. I felt alone for a long time. So now I'm being that person that I didn't have. Yeah. 
which is so beautiful about with what's happening right now. Granted, I look at these little kids now and I'm like, you have no idea what we went through. But also me, I'm just like, you have no idea what we had to go through. That's a fucking magical thing. That means that what we have been working on and what the generations before us and the generations before them, it's working. This is the goal. So that you can be blissfully unaware of the bullshit that, you know, that you can't, that you couldn't wear a dress in elementary school when we were growing up. You couldn't take a boy to homecoming if you were a boy or a girl, if you were a girl or go and live as a trans person or a non-binary person, or, you know, you, you couldn't do all those. They were just unfathomable. And so it's that double edge where it's just like part of me, I saw a TikTok video the other day of this guy literally sitting in his car and he was saying the duality blows him up, blows his mind, but he actually sat there and he cried and he's like, I was robbed. And it, it broke my heart to watch that. And I was just like, but baby, I don't think we were robbed. We were just the chosen generation for whatever it was to be the ones to be that first. All this hard foundation had been laid. We were the first generations to kind of bust out and to yell about it. Mm. Like that kind of came through and was just like, we're going to take what you've already done and we're not going to let this ball drop and we're going to move forward. And we were the chosen generation to kind of keep that going. And I'm thankful for it because if I would have taken away any of those struggles, I wouldn't be the bad bitch that I am today. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And have those, have those messages to pass on. Yeah. It does loop around to this Gen X thing, right? Because our, our generation, Generation X, was the first generation for which all of the previous social contracts were broken. You know, boomers grew up at a time yeah. when you would work your whole life at a company and you would get retirement at 55 and they'd pay your pension and blah, blah, blah. And people expected marriages to stay, you know, before then it was like people stayed together in marriages and it was white picket fences and People, there was enough money for people. To, people got to pay enough money for, you know, a single uh, wage earner to support a whole family. And then you wanted the white picket fence, right? And when we were kids, all of that started to disintegrate. And so I, you know, I think about all of the rabble rousers I know, and there's so many more in our generation than the ones before us. Which is like, wait a, wait a, wait a minute. All the stuff that I was promised. The vision didn't come true for me. Didn't come yeah. true for most people I know. Yeah. If it's not, if you all are breaking the social contract with me, then I don't want to play by your rules anymore. And then we just go and we, what in whatever area we decide we're going to do it, whether it's around LGBTQA plus rights. For me, it was reproductive rights, and I was just like, I'm not. This is ridiculous, right? Women's people's control over women's body is ridiculous. Um, and for other people, it's other things. Well, I also think that I, I, I have to thank the boomers for that because if they weren't as nuts, then we wouldn't have had to fight it. We wouldn't have literally been like, no, fuck you, we got this. We wouldn't have found the fire within us. Right? Yeah, and that was the thing. And also with the fact that they were so, they allowed us to be feral kids, like, because they were fucked up by their people. 
And so it was like, but we, I, I truly do feel that Generation X was like the one that kind of broke. We started that breaking of that mold where the, our generation, we are old enough now. We are now the ones who are finally coming into power, yeah. quote unquote, where we can affect some of these changes. Yeah. Where we still have, we still have a lot of those holdovers, but it's like, we kind of broke that mold of like, no, just because you say it's the way it should be, doesn't mean we're the epitome of, well, why? Because I said so, well, I don't give a shit. Yeah. Why? Like, you need to tell me why. And if you can't tell me why, I'm going to go find out why. And then I'm going to go do it because why? Because we weren't a puritanical country in religious sense always we weren't always that and then the 50s show up mm-hmm. and shit got ugly oh yeah it's so interesting yeah the boomers got screwed because of all of that was coming while they're growing up like all of a sudden they're my mother like was like the slut shaming and all of this stuff that happened you know because like if you wore your hair long or your skirt too short was like wait a minute right you know, so they're all still holding on to that. And now it's just like, now they're learning to let it go a little bit because we're just like, oh, no, bitch. No. <laughs> Which I'm, that's why I'm really proud to be a part of Generation X because I really do think that our generation really did a lot of, we, we, I'm not saying that we should take, we, we deserve any of the credit for what happened, but we, we were, we had enough wherewithal to look at the work that had already been done. And we were willing to take that next very vocal, very aggressive step in whatever direction it needed to be in. And that's when we started getting the realization that women's health and women's bodies were being, where people even realized that that was a problem. Yeah. Because before people didn't even know that it was, Oh, it's fine. No, my husband told me it's fine. No wait. No, that's not okay. Like, do you have babies? No? Well, then shut the fuck up. Exactly. We're the generation also, and we've talked about this on the podcast, that is the first generation to, at least some of us saying like, we have to stop this generational trauma that you said yourself, right, about your mom, like had violence and abuse. And so she, she just continued the cycle. And I know, you know, in terms of body shaming and things like that, like Shailish and I come from a family that's like, oh, Shula, she has, she was an outdoor kid and what, Shula, she had like skinned up Oh, it's, it's hilarious. I was, I was the typical tomboy. I was wanted to run around, climb trees, ride bikes. And I would fall, you know, you're a rough and tumble kid. You fall up, you scrape up your knees. And my mom once told me, she's like, you know, your knees are so scarred. You're never going to be able to get married. And I was like, I'm like not even 10 years old. And I'm like, I felt like very Lisa Simpson in that moment where, you know, Marge says to her, you know, if you keep being this sarcastic, you're never going to get a husband. And she goes, eh, no husband for me then. Right. I don't care. Like I'm 11. Right. I feel like we're, we're also the first, this is why I like cling on to the Gen X kind of like moniker is because we are the first, you know, I have an almost seven-year-old. She's got a 13-year-old and an almost 10-year-old. And we are really, not just passively, but we are really actively like, I'm not passing on this trauma. This is my issues. I'm not passing this on to, so like, I'm very careful about little things. Like I never say like, oh, I feel fat or something like in front of my seven-year-old. 
Correct. So, you know, it's, it's stuff like that, that, you know, as, as our generation, we're the first ones to do that. Correct. And that's what I think we, we, we saw the foundation that was laid there and we took the next step and we weren't afraid to break these habits and to look at societal norms and say, but why, why are those norms? Because some old white dude said, you need, no, no. And I, and I, so thankful to see the other generations coming after because we still have the millennials and and even the zennials like the gen zers are still kicking ass and Mm -hmm. taking names and it's like we are still we are right now and people will say but but look at how backwards things are going i'm like baby it's always darkest before the light yeah like let them let them keep fighting as vicious and disgusting and let them show their ass let them let them show their ass because the more you have them screaming that they're the racist, they're the misogynist, they're the xenophobe, they're this and that, and they're screaming it through their own beliefs, the easier it is to ostracize them from the table. Because if you are not willing to look at those traits and those, those traumas and break those cycles, if you are not willing, it's just like that saying of it's, it's not enough to, to not be racist. You have to be Mm anti-racist. And if you are not willing to look at these traumas and look at these cycles and willing to break that cycle, then there is no room at the table for you. The table will move on without you. Right. Well, just drag it forward and you'll be sitting in your chair. And you'll, you'll either be sitting back there and you will just live your, the end of your days in misery, or you will finally get it through your thick fucking head right you know it's just like this this ultimate fight right now where we're dealing with the new word right now is colonizer i love using that word especially as the white presenting person on a stage in front of a bunch of white people and using the word colonizer and watching them shift in their seats and it's like until we normalize this we are never gonna until you realize that Privilege is not getting extras. It's not having the obstacles inherently put in front of you. So right. the fact that you've had a, you know, you were able to get a job that you wanted to be able to get a credit card or you're able to do this, like you have benefited. Mm-hmm. You didn't have people who automatically assume that you're a drug runner. If you get stopped with something or if an alarm goes off, they don't immediately look at you. Look at you. Right. 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 They don't follow you out of the store or around the store. Yeah. You know, exactly. It's like, we've got to change this mentality and this thing. And what's beautiful is that we're also realizing that, wait, instead of fighting so hard to change it, we're giving the information. And if you are smart enough to pick that up and be willing to look at yourself in the mirror and say, whoa, holy shit, I was wrong. If you're willing to do that, then there's a fucking place at the table. So this is actually a really good opportunity to just tack on and move toward conclusion because unfortunately of timing. I know. Um, you have to sorry. come back. Yeah. I'll, given, I'll do this again anytime. Given it. all you've been through, you know, from your beginnings and at the time, very rural San Jose area, you know, it was like basically on the edge of farmland. Um, <laughs> Gilroy's not that far from there and they still do garlic fests. So yeah, it's basically farmland at that point. Up through hippy dippy Oregon, 
through Idaho, back to New York, back to Idaho, then to Seattle, and now you're in Mexico, living, I hope, your best life right now. Trying to, yeah. The question I have for you is sort of to wrap up, well, the second to last question, Kosh has always got the last question to wrap up the interview, which is what would you say, what advice would you give, right? Not as an expert, but just as someone who's lived through a whole range of experiences, both good and bad, to someone who might be sitting in Idaho right now, wondering if they're gay, wondering if they, you know, like thinking about drag, being really excited about dressing up, putting on makeup, doing the whole thing. What advice would you give to some kid who's like, I, I don't know if I can go there. Find your tribe because your tribe will help guide you and they will lift you up when you need it. If you can't find your tribe where you are, reach out virtually, find your tribe in other places, get the support you need. And then when you feel comfortable and safe and strong, let your tribe lift you up and let you shine. That's really what it's all about. It's not about doing it alone. It's not about, you got this, come out. Some people are strong bitches. Some people are not. Some people become stronger. Some people regress. It, it's, it's an individual thing. But one thing that I've learned is the most important thing is your tribe. It's your people that don't ever ask you to change who you are to make them more comfortable. It's the people who don't tell you, I need to take you in doses. Why don't you turn it down? Oh, you're a little much. Or, oh, you're weird. Or I don't really get that. Or we're going to take this and we're just not going to talk about this. So there are people who are like, that's just not what we talk about. That's not your tribe. Your tribe is going to look at you and go, yeah, bitch, you a lot, but that's what I love. Yeah, you're crazy. I like crazy. Oh, you see this? We're going to put this everywhere. You know, that's the advice. Find your tribe, physically, mentally, digitally, however you can do it. Find your tribe just so that you can feel what it is to be okay with just being you. The rest will come. What a beautiful message. I love it. Oh my God. Thank you so much. You're the bestest. Thank you. So Kosha's got the last Aww. question, which is all fun. Our, yeah. Our last question that we ask everybody, because it's just become this really fun thing, is um, it, the word is familect which is in linguistics, it means the family language varieties. And I love this actually ties in because maybe it has to do with not your family, like your blood family, but maybe it's the tribe. Maybe it's your found family. Your chosen family, yeah. Your chosen family. Your words or phrases or language. And I, I would love to hear some of maybe like your the, the drag world phrases that only you and your family would understand, but if you said it out in the rest of the world, they wouldn't get. Michelle and Wrench. Okay, so I literally, you said that and both of us are like. We're like, wait, did you say the word? Is that gazootite? <laughs> Michelle and Wrench. It's one of those things where it, it came out of an experience. We were all traveling to, in San Francisco. Um, my, we were staying at Love Manor, which is the name of the house that my friend has. It actually is 
a place where a lot of porn films were filmed and all this stuff, but it's this great queer property up on Twin Peaks, beautiful. We had to, we were borrowing the car of the owner and we had to go drop it off down at his restaurant. And my, my friend JD is the guy who owned the house on the restaurant and everything. And he had an assistant, Mich- uh, Michelle, at the time was, that was his personal assistant. We drive the car down and we're going to get an Uber down there and go to the airport. We're doing our thing. Okay, we got enough time. We got ready to go. We're coming down. We're doing our thing. And he goes, hey, as we get there, he goes, can you do me a quick favor? Can you tell Michelle I need to talk to her? And can you go get an Allen wrench from her? And it was one of those things where we were all so late. We were flipping out and our friend, I was just like, we have to go see Michelle. We have to get an Allen wrench. You have to come back. And my friend just goes, all right, Michelle and wrench, go. <laughs> so now to this day, whenever we're running late and there's like 42 things to go, we're like, ah, Michelle and wrench. Oh, that's perfect. And it was in a combination of Michelle and Alan Wrench. Michelle and Wrench. Because you couldn't even take the time to say. No, Michelle and Wrench, go. Oh, that's so perfect. And that is exactly how Familect is, right? That's that's a perfect example, perfect genesis, where it's like a bunch of made up. It's not, it could be like something that is like a translation or it's mm-hmm. just a totally made yeah. up thing. Yeah. We have one other one and that's ticket money passport, tickets money passport. And then you respond with, I'm chanting as we speak, darling. And that means don't forget all your shit. We're on our way out the door. Let's go. Are you ready? Let's go. That and that was all absolutely fabulous. That was Patsy and Adina. And like she went to go leave for a thing and then she comes walking back in the house and she goes, Tickets, money, passport. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, and then the other person would say, What? Oh, I'm chanting as we speak, darling, because it was um, because she was like, there was another scene where they were like, are you chanting? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, darling. I'm chanting as we speak, darling. You know, and it was it was just like, are you are you ready to go? Like, are you doing this? I love it. Oh, my God. So perfect. Well, we love you. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending this time with us. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate you guys. We would love to have you back. Yeah. Thank you. you. I'd love to. I'd love to be back. You said magenta is the new everything. And sh- and they were they were like, oh my God. Mom, see? See? Yeah. I'm living, I'm living with this person now. <laughs> <laughs> Stop being so lame. Look at this right. My like, old tagline is pink, you know, like pink is the new black, or black is the new black, or orange is the new black. And I was like, pink is the new everything. And that was my tagline for a while. But when a kid loved, I was like, blue is the new everything. Like whenever a kid would want to color, be like, but my favorite color, well, blue is the new everything. And it's like they'd be like, <gasps> you know, it was like they're just not Mickey Mouse. Like, you know, once you tell them that their fantasy is okay. Oh my God, that's such a beautiful, right? Like. Yeah, your fantasy is okay because that means eventually it's okay. your, your dream can be okay. Yeah. And you are okay. And then you are okay. Yeah. So, yeah. It's all right, true. go be your fabulous I self. Will. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. You we'll guys are wonderful. You Thank you. I hope so. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye, Brian. Bye. Mama tits. <laughs>